Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the morning after Donald Trump is defeated, disgraced, and twice impeached. Remarkable moment. But we're kind of in a, a choose-your-adventure moment. Uh, we, we did a live stream last night, Bulwark Plus live stream, and I, I asked the question, is the glass half full or half empty? And, you know, in the, in the world of punditry, you can say, you can look at the same story from two different angles. So, for, for example, uh, you could say uh, with uh, about the Republican votes for impeachment that the dam cracked, but it didn't break because there's only 10. But you could also flip it around and say, okay, the dam didn't break, but there are real cracks. So this is the half empty, half full moment. So we'll talk about that. If you uh, if you subscribe to our newsletters, you know that I break the Republican caucus down into four caucuses, the, the Profiles and Courage, which has 10 members, the Sedition Caucus, which has 138 members, the Mugwump Caucus, which has an indeterminate number of members. This would include representatives uh, who clearly understood the enormity of Donald Trump's conduct and were willing to call him out for it, but were not willing to vote. This is the Mugwump Caucus. And then you have the the fourth group, which is I call the, the terrified, the Republican representatives who are just afraid of the flying monkeys, who are afraid of being uh, stalked through airports or, or, or maybe more afraid of actual threats to themselves and their families. And that's also indeterminate. But it's a very real phenomenon now in in Republican in Republican politics. So I wanted to start off on a on a somewhat positive note, because I, I do have to say that the 10 Republicans that voted for impeachment need we need to acknowledge what they did. Eight of the 10 represent districts that were won by Donald Trump, in some cases won rather comfortably by Donald Trump. And I was struck by how eloquent and principled some of them were, including this uh, congressman from the state of Washington. This is Republican Congressman Dan Newhouse on the floor of the House of Representatives yesterday. Madam Speaker, this is a sad day in our republic, but not as sad or disheartening as the violence we witnessed in the Capitol last Wednesday. We are all responsible. My colleagues are responsible for not condemning rioters this past year like inside. Others, including myself, are responsible for not speaking out sooner before the president misinformed and inflamed a violent mob who tore down the American flag and brutally beat Capitol Police officers. Madam Speaker, we must all do better. These articles of impeachment are flawed, but I will not use process as an excuse. There is no excuse for President Trump's actions. The president took an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Last week, there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol, and he did nothing to stop it. That is why, with a heavy heart and clear resolve, I will vote yes on these articles of impeachment. The gentleman from Ohio wishes to reserve. The gentleman uh, from Madam Ohio wishes to reserve. The gentleman from Ohio is Jim Jordan, so the word gentleman is doing a lot of work there. So our guest on today's podcast is former U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, a Democrat from North Dakota. Senator, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, Charlie. So you, you and I were having a brief conversation right before we began this, and 
I, I was mentioning that I was going to play a soundbite, which, you know, with all due respect, I was going to say was somewhat stupid. And you, you had an observation about that phrase, with all due respect. Well, I think it's always so interesting when people say all due respect, which means they have none. Um, whoever you're talking about is due with no respect. And so I always laugh when I hear it. Okay, so this is what I was referring to. Um, your former colleague, Lindsey Graham, I'm sure you know him quite well, uh, was on uh, was on one of the shows, I assume Fox News yesterday. And this is this is what Lindsey Graham had. Lindsey Graham is back, by the way. You know, poodles are going to poodle. I actually thought maybe he had broken up with Donald Trump last week. Uh, that breakup lasted, what, a few days. Now he's flying around with him. He's the, he's the lead defender of Donald Trump. This is what he said, though, on a, on a brief uh, cable appearance. We'll play this out. We impeached the president today, today without any evidence. It's just sheer hatred. If this becomes the norm, be careful what you wish for today. Under this theory, the radical left, if you can impeach a president after they're out of office, why don't we impeach George Washington? He owns slaves. Where does this stop? So to my... So with all due respect, that was just really dumb. And, and, I, and, I, and I say that because you know that Lindsey Graham is a you know, pretty smart guy. And I'm old enough to remember when he was clever and he was witty. And, and now talking about, yes, that's really going to happen. It makes, makes you think, right? I mean, the, you uh, radical lefty Democrats are going to go and you're going to impeach George Washington next. So any, I, any, any thoughts, Senator Heitkamp? I'm, 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 I'm sorry well, to start I'm, you off on this note. but Well, I'm always interested when people say he's a smart guy. Um, you know, there's an old expression, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. There's nothing smart about what he just said. There was nothing profound. There was nothing heroic. This is all, you know, what's the laugh line on Fox News today? Where can I, you know, get people to nod their heads when I'm talking instead of leading? And how you lead is you lead with a principled discussion. There was nothing principled about that. It was just, it was just more pablum. And, and you know what? What we found out about Lindsey um, since John McCain died is that he really didn't have any principle. His his whole body is in reflective glory. You know, spending time with John, we thought he was principled because John was principled. Now right. he has spent time with the president and that principle image that he has is completely evaporated. He's a mirror. He's a mirage. You, you know, you, you've made a really interesting point there because, you know, you, you talk about the pablum. It, it is pandering. It is. You can see the guys like Lindsey Graham who basically go for the applause lines, the laugh lines on right wing media, you know, Fox, Fox News media. And, and this is something that I've, I've noticed. Um, and, and again, I, I, I don't know what the IQ of these these folks are. But one of the real, I think, depressing fallouts of the Trump era is the way that everybody else feels the need to dumb themselves down. And I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that you have, you have people who are at one point somewhat literate and coherent who talk like that now. And, and it is basically just sort of pandering to the base. And so you see people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley almost aggressively lowering their IQs in order to, in order to play. I mean, that's what, that's, you know that's what you're talking about here. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I was on Sky TV in London with a Republican official in Georgia, and he was bragging about how the Republicans now need know how to talk to working class people. And I want to say, hey, I, I mean, I'll hold my working class credentials up against anyone. My dad was a seasonal construction worker, and we relied on unemployment. 
My mom was a school cook. My dad didn't even have a chance to go to high school. So don't tell me about working class. My dad was one of the smartest people and could understand a complex argument. I am so irritated by this notion that, you know, man, we can we can really talk to people. You know what? Leadership is about informing. It's about leading and listening. And there's nothing in leadership today uh, in the Republican side that I see as doing that. You know, this is also an interesting point because there is that that inherent contempt then for people in rural America. Fly this. This, by the way, is our Midwestern podcast for you coastal elites listening. Because I'm in <laughs> Wisconsin, and Heidi Heidkamp uh, represented North Dakota. So this is this is uh, you know this is the heartland of of America speaking here. But this this implied contempt that by dumbing ourselves down, that's how we communicate to people out there in, in the world. Well, no, the reality is, is that people who live in, in the heartland, you know, may not have the college degrees, but they are not stupid. And, and there is that sort of pandering, the, the, this, this sense that I'm going to say this because I think that the rubes will buy it, but they're the ones who think of the folks as the rubes. Aren't they? I don't, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. When when we when when we actually come together and say, okay, what's your health care needs and how do we deliver that? And why is it that health insurance is so expensive for you folks? And what's your insecurities in terms of retirement? They understand, I mean, this idea that, oh, well, we just have to throw out the raw need about socialism and defund the police and then, you know, the, the rabble will be roused and storm the Capitol. I mean, their job is to offer an alternative. And I think, you know, when you listen to people who are principled on the other side, they understand that. And they understand that, um, you know, we have to be one America if we're governable and if we're going to restore our democracy. And that requires dialogue and not pandering. So let's let's just dive into where we're at right now. The president of the United States has just been impeached for the second time. So Don, Donald Trump, Defeated, disgraced, impeached twice. Uh, Ten Republicans voted uh, in, the, in the House of Representatives, which, just to put this in context, uh, this is the largest bipartisan impeachment vote in history. And it's clearly a significant break with the complete lockstep support that he got the first time around. So Jonathan Allen tweeted out, this constitutes, the 10 votes constitute the highest uh, number from the president's own party ever. And 231 overall votes so far, I think it was 232 by, in the end, is the highest number in history. In other words, this is the strongest and most bipartisan repudiation of a president by the House. And now it goes... Uh, to your former colleagues in the United States. And just give me your, your, your thoughts of this particular moment, uh, President well, Trump uh, standing and, 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 and whether or not there's going to be a trial, what it's going to be. Which, what, what are you thinking? You know, I put it in the context of, um, of how I think as a lawyer. And you have heard repeatedly that the House does the indictment, right? So there was enough to indict the president. And I think that's clearly true or you wouldn't have gotten 10 Republicans to do it. And so now we move on to the Senate for the trial. When you indict someone, you just prove that there's enough probable cause that they should be charged. And, and now there is going to be more evidence. And I think that the tragedy for so many of the Republican members is when they discover the true extent of the threat to our democracy. You know, I was chilled when the U.S. attorney came out, the acting U.S. Mm -hmm. attorney, and said what they're discovering right now 
is going to shock the country. Well, what does that mean? We saw something that was already shocking. I think that there is more information coming about um, uh, participation of people who should never have participated in this. And so um, I expect that when this does come to trial in the Senate, and it will, that there will be a whole body of evidence that will have been collected as a result of what happened last Wednesday. Well, how do you feel about the prospect of a trial, an impeachment trial of a president who's already left office? He's gone. I mean, uh, you you will be hearing all the talking points. Why bother? Why do it? He's gone. Let's move on. Let's forget it. Let's let bygones be bygones. And we get on with the business of healing, kumbaya. Well, let, let let me put this again in the context. So we have a corrupt politician who resigns and you say, okay, he's gone. We're not going to charge him. We're not going to hold him accountable in the criminal justice system. You know, how we hold people accountable is in this system of, uh, of uh, impeachment, in, impeachment and removal. Yes, he can't be removed, but he can be prevented from ever being uh, elected to any position of authority again. And so there's real consequences that have to be imposed through this removal process. And and so I, I would say, I just always love it. Now there's this big kumbaya moment. We're all supposed to say, oh, kumbaya. And I'm like, you know, that that's what got us here to begin with, was this gradual erosion of standards and norms and and really principles. And now, now when we get to the very end, when we have to impose a direct consequence, it's like, oh, you know, let's just forget it and move on. Well, yeah, my, they'd love to. The Republican Party would love to forget it and move on, and that's really what you're hearing. And my BS meter was going off. Um, I had to turn off some of the debate yesterday, listening to listening to some of the Republicans, uh, you know, talk about the you know the need to heal, the need to have unity, quoting Abraham Lincoln. And some of these were the same folks that last week literally voted to overturn a presidential election, who bought into the big lie, who didn't stand up against Donald Trump's you know, toxic you know, pollution of our political uh, system by you know, constantly you know, spreading conspiracy theories and falsehoods and everything, and in fact voted to throw out the votes of, of the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, there was 126 Republicans in the House of Representatives that actually signed on to that completely bogus, dishonest lawsuit from Texas to overturn the election. And now, and these people, who have been supporting Donald Trump are now t- talking to us about the need to, yeah. to change the tone. I mean, really? I mean, you want to talk about Gaslight Nation and Gaslighting America. That was amazing yesterday. Can, can, can I just, something that's getting Please. lost in all of this, Charlie, is this idea he's been the best president, man. Look at all the great things that he's done, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, this This week, in foreign affairs, I think it's foreign affairs, uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson eviscerates mm-hmm. the president's foreign policy record. I could show you chart after chart where he did not grow this economy at any level greater than what Obama did in the last three years. In fact, fewer job uh, jobs being created during his tenure, and that's before COVID. Fewer, you know, lower GDP. I mean, I could just go through it, but there is this narrative that somehow he gets a walk because he's been this extraordinary, incredibly successful president. It's just BS. Over 350,000 Americans are dead today because of his inattention to a pandemic. 
And so let's not let them also rewrite that history. Not only is his character flawed, but his presidency was unsuccessful. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I feel guilty every single day about being distracted from the fact that 4,000 Americans are dying every day in this pandemic that the president is completely ignoring. He's not even going through the motions of pretending to lead or do anything about it. 4,000 Americans, you know, 9-11 times two every single day. It is it is so appalling. We're also seeing the job numbers out, the number of unemployment claims. Uh, Donald Trump will leave office with the worst jobs record of any modern president. So, yeah, uh, uh, the Rex Tillerson piece is very, very interesting for the people who believe, well, you know, he should have you know, won a Nobel Peace Prize. No, he left us worse off than he was before than he than he was before. So, yeah, there is that gaslighting about what kind of a president he was. Um, but also uh, you mentioned you were on Sky News yesterday. It is interesting how the rest of the world is watching this. And, and I, I think this is something that sometimes that that we need to constantly remind ourselves. The whole world is watching this process. The whole world is watching what's happening. They're seeing Washington as a as an armed camp. I mean, these these pick. I mean, you've been in the obviously you worked in the Capitol. This is stunning to see yeah. the Capitol, uh, ba- you know, in, uh, you know, basically under siege right now. Just just so, you know, I think it's always so interesting because Americans think, oh, well, I'm going to have my image on television and that's what people are going to remember. The whole while I was talking on Sky uh, uh, Network at, in London and in the UK, they were showing pictures of yeah. the National Guard guarding our capital. That's what the image was. So never mind what I said. The image that they're seeing is of armed military personnel protecting the capital against domestic terrorism threats. That's exactly what's happening right now in Washington. Yet these young men are in the capital to defend American democracy against the supporters of the president of the United States. I mean, this is that moment. Uh, it, it, it is it is extraordinary. You remember, of course, last summer, the way every time that there was um, a, a riot or disorder anywhere in the country, uh, you know, a, a Starbucks was, was burned down. The the, the narrative on, on, in, in Trump world was this is Joe Biden's America. This is Joe Biden's America, which was always absurd because, of course, it was literally happening in <laughs> Donald Trump's America. But right now, we need to look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., where our nation's capital, which should be celebrating the peaceful transition of power, is in fact an armed camp. And the fact that we are not having a peaceful transfer of power, that 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 ship has already sailed. This is because of Donald Trump. This is, again, literally, this is Donald Trump's America. I, I want to make this point because I have a, a history with right-wing extremist <laughs> groups. I was I was the tax commissioner during the Posse Comitatus movement in North Dakota, which resulted in a U.S. Marshal getting shot, which shocked the conscience of the nation as well. I have seen Ruby Ridge. I have been the attorney general of my state, and I recognize and understand the threat that white, right-wing extremist military groups pose to American democracy. Why this is significant and why it's happening right now is Donald Trump has given them permission. He has said, you're part of my club. You're part of what I want to do for America. And instead of being outliers, instead of being you know, the extremist groups that are condemned by everyone on every side of civil society, they now are front row and center 
as the militia for Donald Trump. And that's exactly what this president unleashed. I'm not saying that everybody in the MAGA movement are no. those people. In fact, I don't believe that. But I think he has given permission to the absolute worst among us, white supremacist, anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, we can go down the line. Groups that now feel like they are in power and they don't want to give it up. To a certain extent, I'm trying to think who made this analogy that the your your average grassroots Trump supporter may not be part of all of that, but they are kind of like the human shields for the, yeah. the 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 folks that we saw last week in a very concerted way attacking the the Congress. And as you you reference, I I think that uh, as this as this unfolds, we're going to find out this was much more organized, much more violent, much more deadly than we thought. Uh, and and one of the legacies of Donald Trump is he has brought these extremes from the fever swamp into the mainstream. So going back, you were on Sky yesterday and I was I was interviewed by BBC um, radio and they had me respond to a comment by a Wisconsin congressman named Glenn Grothman, who stood up on the floor of the House yesterday and essentially uh, minimized what Donald Trump had done and said, oh, it's not fair to say that he incited any violence because he gave that speech and he wanted peaceful protest. And then he said, you know, I want you to fight. But that's that's just a normal hyperbole. So and it, as it turns out, Glenn Grothman is my congressman. I know Glenn Grothman. So I had to respond on British radio to a fellow Wisconsin congressman who is just basically saying, oh, he didn't say those words. And this was one of those, you know, with all due respect moments, because, you know, talk about disingenuous, because this is not about the specific words that Donald Trump spoke on Wednesday afternoon. This is Donald Trump who has propagated the big lie. And I think that people need to understand what this impeachment's about. It is the prevention of the peaceful transition of power. He lied repeatedly about the election. He pressured state officials to uh, to rig the election, to to recalculate the election. He pressured his own vice president to uh, violate his oath of office and break the law and overturn a democratic election. So and and then. He incited his supporters to march on the Capitol with the specific goal of stopping Congress from counting and certifying the Electoral College. I mean, this is one of those where I don't I'm, I, look. Glenn Grothman is a quote unquote smart guy. But do you not see what is at stake here? I mean, we've had uh, impeachments in the past. Uh, Andrew Johnson, I think, was was a totally deplorable human being. And you think about Bill Clinton, what, what he did and the, even the phone call to Ukraine. But nothing is at the level of this right now. I mean, this was so, a president uh, of the United States I, I trying to, to overturn the election. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to make this point because, you know, they're they're all about, well, that, you know, that speech shouldn't do it. Okay. Let's say I buy what you're saying, Congressman, that that speech was okay and it's not actionable. He did not immediately when he saw what was happening at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. He did not condemn that violence. He did nothing to stop it immediately. That's the job of a commander in chief, is to immediately step up and lead this country in moments of crisis. Instead, he was almost gleeful if we're to believe these reports. And then when he came out, he told those people storming the Capitol that he loved them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, hello. I mean, what more evidence do you need that 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 was exactly the intention of that speech on the on the uh, uh, mall when he said, go fight? Then he said, I love you. 
you know, your patriots. Hello. I mean, it's not you've got to look at the whole continuum right. of the what he did, not just that speech. No, I, I agree with you. And by the way, there is more evidence. And and this this needs to be highlighted a little bit more. So this attack occurred in the afternoon of January 6th. And the goal was to stop Congress or to delay the certification of the vote. That was the intent. I think it's shocking and horrible that 138 members of, of Congress voted to also, you know, do what the protesters wanted to do. But here's the I don't want to say smoking gun, but but dramatic piece of evidence of of the president's mindset at seven o'clock that night. Rudy Giuliani placed a phone call to a United States senator and our friends at the dispatch deserve tremendous credit for breaking this story because we have it on tape. Rudy Giuliani calls. He thinks he's calling Senator Tommy Tuberville of, of Alabama. He thinks he's calling him. He leaves a voicemail and he says, this is Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. So he identifies himself as speaking for the president. And he says, I want you to do we need to delay this vote. We need to delay it. And I want you to object to every state to slow the process down uh, just across the board, not because I have new evidence or because there's an argument here. What Giuliani would specifically say is because we want to delay Congress's action, its constitutional obligation to count these votes. This took place at seven o'clock that night. So even after all of the mayhem, all of the violence, there were dead bodies you know, in the Capitol. Rudy Giuliani and the president are still trying to do what the insurrectionists were trying to do, which was to delay this vote. So, Senator. I mean, this is in some ways, you know, people say, well, where's the evidence? And, you know, what, what words did he say? That detail, I think, has got to come up during the Senate trial. Well, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And I wish I wish we knew everything because mm -hmm. then I would feel more secure in this country. But we do not. The, the bombs that didn't detonate were clearly done as a diversionary tactic. They used the rubes that, you know, kind of thought that they were having a picnic or I called them kind of like a tailgater, you know, kind of like uh, I shouldn't use any, I, I won't because, you know, as a Minnesota Vikings person, you know, uh, we, we, get, we experience what happens in Philly to people who wear the wrong colors. And so I think there, there was this kind of atmosphere of almost like kids who were getting by with something. They were the front. They were not yes. the, the threat. The threat was the people walking in paramilitary garb, walking behind the Oath Keepers, who clearly had something much more uh, nefarious in mind. And I, I wanted th another bit of evidence that goes unchecked is what happened to the Senate Parliamentarian's office. Now, you have to you have to know the Capitol in order to know where the Parliamentarian's office is. It's not a place that you would necessarily go in and destroy. They were looking for those hmm. um, certifications from states. They were looking to literally steal the the evidence of peaceful transfer of power. And and anyone who believes that's not true is not paying attention. So what is Mitch McConnell up to right now? How, what, what do you think the state of play in the Senate is? I, I think the state of play is, look, we're going to play this out. Um, it doesn't have to be on my watch. I'm not going to to rush to do this. Um, I think, I think uh, people in leadership typically get much more detailed briefings about what's going on. I think that as the U.S. attorney 
in the District of Columbia said there is other evidence that's coming to the front. I think they're aware of what that intel says. And I think he is basically leaving room for his caucus um, to eventually get additional information and make up their own mind. If he came out today, it would put tremendous pressure on everyone to fall in line. And, and quite honestly, um, I think he is personally appalled. I, I think his wife resigning tells you mm-hmm. um, uh, the personal, the level at which he's taken this personally. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that when we, when we look at kind of where Mitch is right now, I think he is in wait and see what happens mode. Well, you were there um, and watched the Republican party acquiesce to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I certainly am old enough to remember when Mitch McConnell was demonized by Donald Trump, when many of them were very, very skeptical. So you served with many of the Republicans who in private, this is almost now legendary, in private would say how horrible Trump was, but refused to speak out against him and eventually went along with him in lockstep. So is there like a built up pressure of people saying we're done with that? We 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 feel guilty or we regret what what we did in you know during the the Vichy Trump years. Well, I, I mean, I I like your idea of putting um, various members into four buckets. You know, who are they? That there are true believers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who have drank the Kool Aid who will never uh, retreat. And then there's the opportunists, as I see it, and that really uh, Ted Cruz falls into that category. Yeah as does um, uh, Holly, you know, where's my opportunity? Where's my way to get ahead? Then there's the deniers. It's really not that bad because they're the frogs in the water. The heat's been turned up. You know, think about this, Charlie. You and I are old enough to remember when (laughs) the uh, Republican Party was the free trade party, but yet they let the, the, the president impose taxes on the American people unchecked. I mean, you know, you don't have to look any further than the work that Bob Corker and I tried to do to say, hey, pay attention to this. Um, This is somebody who is engaged in autocratic tendencies. And and people say, oh, you exaggerate. I'm just going to go through every example where he eroded the norms, whether it was on on trade, whether it was looking at executive orders. He was building a case for autocracy. And and the people who were too afraid because of their political career to stand up and say, this is the direction we're headed. Let's try and push back. It wasn't until the final days that they actually overrode a veto. Think about yes. that. Yes. And rather dramatically so. Yeah. On, on a big one. So tell me about what it's like to be in the United States Senate. I mean, it, there was a time, of course, when this was the most exclusive club and where people would, you know, go out to dinner with one another and drink with one another. In your years there, did you have that kind of a relationship with other senators? Is there a clubby or is that gone in, in sort of the new tribal politics? I mean, do you know, do you, did you hang out? Did you feel you got to know people like Ron Johnson or, you know, uh, you know, what Lamar Alexander or I just, you know, or I don't, I don't know, you know, Rob Portman. What what was your relationship with these folks? Um, It really depended on the member. Uh, You know, um, I have a, I have a a fondness for Lamar. I I have a fondness for um, James Langford. I was so disappointed Mm -hmm. that he was one of the original objectors. I, I mean, there are people, this idea that we're not like, like, 
friendly to each other or that we don't get together for dinner. And if we only did, that would solve the problem. That is a false discussion. That is so not what's going on. What's going on, in my opinion, is that the leaders of the Senate who used to worry about the institution, who used to worry about, you know, the role that the Senate played constitutionally, have become political leaders, not leaders of an institution. And and as a result, they allow the institution be encroached upon, the responsibilities to be not fulfilled. I mean, the fact that we do CRs instead of budgets, continuing resolutions instead of budgets, this is broken beyond um, beyond Donald Trump, and it was broken long before Donald Trump. And so it really is incumbent on members to take some responsibility away from leadership to really start moving forward. I'm, you know, th- th- there's all now this this narrative, like uh, the reason why we can't cooperate with you because you're impeaching the president again. That, that is so wrong. That is not why you can't cooperate. You don't want to cooperate because maybe that that little email that you send out to hundreds of thousands of Republicans won't like it if you say today I compromised with a with a Democrat and got something done. You won't get any money if you say that. But if you say today I really socked it to you know X Y Z senator Democrat, you know then maybe the money flows. And so we've gone from the tyranny and fundraising of large dollar donors to now the tyranny of the small dollar donors who are the most active among the base. And that is dangerous as well. So you were in the Senate in a very interesting period. You were elected during the, well, you were, you were elected in 2012 mm-hmm. and, and until 20, until 2019. So you were in the majority for a while. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. and what's interesting you, you, about, you, you've seen it from both sides. Yeah. What's interesting about my election is um, when I was elected, um, in 12, it may have been the last time um, that a senator could get elected um, from the opposite political party against overwhelming odds. odds. Hmm. Um, the president, uh, President Obama, lost North Dakota that year by 22 points, but yet I was able to get elected. Since that point in time, um, and you saw this erosion across the board, Senate races have become nationalized. Yeah. And only Susan Collins has been able to beat that trend. And remember, one of her legislative districts went for Donald Trump. And so that's a mixed bag there. But as goes the presidential election, so goes the Senate right. election. And so the nationalization of these elections, I think, is also an incredibly difficult um, trend. And it creates the narrative that you have to get line if you want to get reelected. So. One, one, one thing that, that I think people have probably figured out is that being a United States senator is a very good deal. It is a very cool thing, right? I mean, it is, it is, uh, there's a lot of perks, there's a lot of prestige, there's a lot of actual power. But here's my, my question. As you have watched, as we've all watched the you know, Republican senators, including chairman of committees, bow the knee to Donald Trump and swallow one indignity after another, I hear the question. So is is being a United States senator so important that you're willing to sacrifice all this? Is is really losing a U.S. Senate seat the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? So you're willing to go along with everything. So you have lost a U.S. Senate seat and it's got to be not not great, not not, not well, a great thing. But there's life after the Senate, isn't there, Senator Heitkamp? Well, I, you know, I I famously voted against Kavanaugh. 
mm-hmm. thought that he lied under oath. I still believe he lied under oath, and I didn't think he was worthy of a Supreme Court um, position. A lot of people said you, if you had any chance of getting reelected, that sealed the deal. And I famously said, really? You know, I at the end of the day, um, John, uh, Robert Kennedy gave a speech, and I always mm-hmm. remember these words. Uh, he, he advised um, young people uh, in a graduation speech to pursue a, a life of service. And he said, remember this, history will judge you, but more importantly, you'll judge yourself. And so um, I'm a cancer survivor. I really shouldn't be alive. Um, that helps calibrate your, your kind of thinking about what you do with the rest of your life. And I just, I, I couldn't live with myself, never mind think about what history would say about me if I did not stand up and say what I believed at this very difficult time in our, in our democracy. And, you know, I, 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 you say, oh, you know, it's a great job. It really isn't a great job. I've had better political jobs. Being the attorney general of North Dakota was a much more satisfying, much um, more exciting, interesting job than being in the United States Senate. I mean, you know, so you might say, oh, but no one would know who you are. I don't care. Uh, you know, it's not not a big deal to me that people know who I am. Um, it, what's what's important to me is that I've made a contribution like any other citizen of this country. And we have to get beyond this, you know, revering of our leaders. They're not so special. None of these people are so special that you couldn't take 100 people out of at random in this country and maybe do a better job. Yeah, that's certainly one of the lessons is put not your faith in princes. So going back to that decision, you, you did you know at that point when you were going to vote against Kavanaugh that it, that it was more likely than not to cost you your Senate seat? Sure. Mm-hmm. You did know uh, that? You know, yeah. So tell me how you made that decision. What? Because. What is that like? I mean, you're sitting down, take a deep breath. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, I mean, I, what what I would tell you is you feel the weight of a lifetime appointment for a young man who could be there 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so people kept saying, oh, Heidi, you know, you're, you're the, the people today want you to vote this way. I said, that's fine and good if you're voting on whether you're going to spend, uh, you know, $100 million on an aircraft carrier, um, because that's something that's temporary, right? Um it's different if you're giving a lifetime appointment. It's it's behind behind I think impeachment and the idea to go to war. A confirmation vote for a Supreme Court justice is mm-hmm. the most significant vote you can take. And you know, in the end, it's like I was outraged that he lied under oath. And people can say, oh, well, you know, it was a long time ago. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a- Ralphing wasn't about throwing up when you were drinking, that it was about an upset tummy from eating spaghetti. Hello. I mean, if you lie about small things, you lie about big things. The guy lied under oath, and that was completely disqualifying and outrageous to me. I have one more question about impeachment, and this is, of course, the the, the political calculation that the the danger that um, by having now two impeachments of of the same president that uh, it, it's going to become normal that it will become that every 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 president will now face impeachment i mean we uh, up until uh very recently i mean when i was when i was a kid um there was only one president who had ever been impeached I mean, it was the one thing it was very very rare and then of course bill clinton now uh, we have we have donald trump twice 
Um, you, you probably heard about this, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, who um, really is in my, in my mind a symbol of really the 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 uh, uh, the metastasizing sickness and metastasizing uh, sickness of the Republican Party. She's a QAnon supporter, um, real demagogue from from Georgia, uh, member of Congress. She's the one who refuses to wear the mask. Anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene goes on. I think this is Newsmax or one of the stations that wants to be to the right of Fox News. And this is what she said yesterday. Let's play this. Well, uh, and yes, 10 or so Republicans did this as well. We'll have more on that in a bit. Congresswoman, I understand, though, you have something uh, pressing, something important and something new you'd like to share with everybody. Yes, I, I would like to announce on behalf of the American people, we have to make sure that our leaders are held accountable. We cannot have a president of the United States that is willing to abuse the power of the office of the presidency um, and be easily bought off by foreign governments, uh, foreign Chinese or Chinese energy companies, Ukrainian energy companies. So on January 21st, I will be filing articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. Wow. Articles of impeachment on Joe Biden on his first full day as president. I'm looking at. Okay, Senator Heidkamp, is this our future? Uh, You know, good luck with that. I mean, when we start listening to someone as irresponsible as her and pretending that that's the future, I refuse to believe she's the future. I refuse to believe that's the direction we're heading. And quite honestly, if this were the tables were turned, as many Democrats said yesterday, if the tables were turned, I would tell you that every Democrat, I think, would have voted to impeach yesterday. And so good luck with that. She's I mean, let's not focus attention on her. Let's not give her all this ink we're giving her. She's she's an outlier. She's she is somebody who is the worst of what happens when uh when we have a completely polarized society and let's, let's just ignore her. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit because uh, you, you were a Senator from, from North Dakota. I've heard you talk about um, the need for Democrats to begin to, well, not begin to, but Democrats to speak more clearly to rural America. And this has been one of the big stories in American politics is despite everything that's been happening Rural America has been shifting more red. Donald Trump's support in rural America seems to have gone up. The gap between rural America and the rest of the country seems to be broadening. You are on the board of directors of one country. Uh, Just talk to me about what Democrats need to do or or what they don't. Okay, well, let let me back up. So what has happened? Why has rural America turned so sharply to something like Trumpism? Well, it's interesting because when you look at the policies and the history of rural America, I mean, my grandmother was a Democrat because she told me FDR put food on the table. I mean, she was probably apolitical before that, but FDR saved her family farm. Um, And then we see the rural electrification movement when infrastructure for rural America was being left behind and the Democrats stepped up and help fund that. And, and you, I can go through example upon example 
but we've lost our way as Democrats. We, we do not get out there and actually have a conversation. And so what they hear is the national political narrative about defund the police or socialism or we're going to take away your jobs. You know, that's our goal. And people have this idea that rural America is just um, agriculture. It's not. A lot of rural America is supported by extraction of minerals. It's supported by mm -hmm. the energy industry. And, and we need to get out and actually have a conversation about how we can all move forward. We're not going to win rural America back the way we had it in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but we have to, if we're going to have a governable um, uh, society, if we are going to have a, an opportunity to be successful, we have to make every part of our economy successful and inclusive. And I think the Democratic Party shares the responsibility and they have failed to include rural America. And we're going to try and continue to do everything we can to sound the alarms and to build back a political base that will allow rural America to vote democratically. So how much of this is economic, economics, and how much of it is cultural? How much of it is guns, God, you know, things like this, um, you know, the, the, the cultural um, divisions in, in society as opposed to um, economic. So, for example, I, I got a lot of calls from people saying, well, what's happening in Wisconsin after the, the, the tariffs? Uh, a lot of rural Wisconsin is being hurt by the tariffs. Is that going to show up at the ballot box? And, and my gut sense was no, because it's not just about the economy, stupid. And this is something that, that I think the left is having a hard time addressing. Well, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, it didn't show up at the ballot box because uh, uh, Secretary uh, uh, Ross suggested that what you do is you just throw some money into rural America. And so billions of dollars in market facilitation payments um, came. And so let's be honest. They, yeah. they, they also spent a tremendous amount of money. Um, uh, unchecked and unfettered. Not to be socialism. Not not to be yeah, confused yeah, with socialism. Yeah, that's right. That's that's yeah. right. Not to be confused yeah. with um, buying an election. <laughs> but but I think that it. I I sum it up this way, Charlie. Instead of talking about culture, gods, guns, you know, mm. gays, you know, mm. the stuff we used to talk about. It's about respect. It's about yes, you can have a different opinion than I have about these things, but do you respect my opinion? And I think that. As you look at this, when people are told repeatedly that they're racist, if they're concerned about, um, you know, what what's happening in America, um, it, they're they're told that they're homophobic if they don't um, uh, agree with uh, certain practices. That there there isn't that back and forth that um, they feel like their opinions respected. Um, so what I would what I would say is. Um, the best way for people to feel included is to be included. And, and I'm not saying that you need to retrench or, or, you know, change how you feel about it, but I think you need to have the dialogue. And, and that's what we're trying to do at One Country. That's what I've been trying to do because I don't think it's possible to govern this country or to create a governable majority unless the Democratic Party begins to be more inclusive about uh, rural America. Senator Heidi Heidkamp, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on the Bulwark podcast. You bet, Charlie. And I won't say with all due respect, it's been great being with you. <laughs> and, thank, <laughs> and thank you all for listening to today's podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.